from Newfoundland and Labrador, Canada. You are listening to Global Frequencies, Diverse Province, Diverse Voices. This program is presented by the Association for New Canadians and CHMR 93.5 FM with funding from the Community Radio Fund of Canada. This program is available on Spotify, Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and more. Welcome to yet another episode here on Global Frequencies. We are now on episode 10, and I'm your friend and host, Nabila Qureshi. I just want to take a few moments to go back in time to when the team, we met to decide and to brainstorm how to proceed with the workings of this show. And we were deciding, you know, how to best capture as many voices and stories as we can and how to segment them according to themes. Of course, from that conversation stemmed our desire to want to capture cultural music through the stories of people who either identify with a specific culture or have knowledge about it. And of course, we have a couple other segments called our special feature. And we also have immigrant stories or newcomer stories. So today we have songwriter Dave Mundy from the United States who will be exploring his Delta Blues music journey. We have Santiago Guzman from Metepec, Mexico, who moved to Newfoundland not too long ago to pursue a BFA in theater and now has his own theatrical production company called Todos. And of course we have Hussam Basime, a physics and mathematics undergraduate student at MUN. First up, songwriter and musician Dave Mundy sits down with Zynova in the studio here at Global Frequencies to, to explore what his journey was like with this specific genre and what his life was also like growing up both in St. Louis and spending most of his time in Athens, Georgia. Welcome to Global Frequencies and Nabila. Yes, I'm here with one of the best harmonica players in this province, a songwriter and who has produced many albums already and he comes from a neighboring country, the USA. Dave Mundy. Hey. Welcome back to the show. Thank you so much, Zai. Thanks for those kind words. Please introduce yourself, uh, which part of the United States you come from. Right. My name is Dave Mundy. I came from mostly Athens, Georgia, born and bred in St. Louis, and spent most of my life after that in Athens, Georgia. And Athens, Georgia is right in the South, and uh, the South has a lot of um, wonderful history with uh, blues music. I love blues. I love especially uh, the Delta blues variety, which is strong with gospel tradition. Mm-hmm. And uh, with Delta Blues, you're not looking to, you're not usually plugged in, Mm -hmm. it's more acoustic, and uh, it relies a lot more on the expression Mm -hmm. of the uh, players instead of playing a lot of loud, fast, you know, crazy licks. Like some some of the other blues that people are, you know, I love Stevie Ray Vaughan to death, I love Jimi Hendrix to death, but that's a much different style of blues, Mm -hmm. right? My style is more, um, it's storytelling. Yeah. And it really uses dynamics Mm -hmm. to try to infuse a lot more emotion from the words. And uh, 
sensitivity in you know in those regards. So um, that's my medium. That's what I love. But I'm a songwriter, and that takes me all over the place. I don't just write in blues. I write in folk uh, tradition as well, and anything. I'm influenced by all these great songwriters around me. You know, from Amelia Curran, right, mm-hmm. who's a local person. I think her songwriting is amazing. You know, to people like Paul Simon, or you know, things that are a little bit more poppy. Mm-hmm. I, I think I think they're all great. So you'll hear some of that in my songs. A little bit the music scene to where you grew up. How was that? Right. So I was born in St. Louis, and I was born in the inner city. So I was a minority, and uh, the neighborhood we were in was predominantly black, African American, but also had tons of other ethnicity as well. Mm-hmm. And that was great. You know, I never felt like I was privileged by any means. Mm-hmm. Right? You know, I was mugged very early on and put in my place on the harsh streets of St. Louis. But one of the things that I really valued from that time was being raised in very strong Catholic tradition. Our Catholic church being in the inner city had lots of this African-American influence. Mm. And I was in the choir with my parents who did a lot of work with the Catholic church. And I would hear these lovely ladies belting out the mm-hmm. songs that, you know, we were all belting out, but the way they were doing it was really special to mm-hmm. me. I was like, wow, they really feel this song, you know? What if I let go of some of my inhibitions mm-hmm. and just tried to express, you know, with a little bit more of myself, like these these gals were doing? And um, that's what I refer to as soulful expression right when you're willing to put a little bit more of yourself out there yeah and i loved it yeah so you said that you are minority there how does that like to be a blues musician among the black community and you are white and mm-hmm. how's that feel right so then when i moved to the south um, i moved there with a band right after college and uh, i was a drummer then didn't like playing drums a whole lot just because i it was <laughs> It's a it's you you're the hardest working member of most bands, right? Mm. You're the first one there. Your setup is ridiculous. You have to carry the most. You're the last one to leave. And the way, you know, they put you in these ridiculous situations, mm. usually in these tiny cramped corners and be like, "Okay, put your drum kit there." And mm-hmm. you know, you, you got bass players, you know, falling over your ride cymbal all the time and all this stuff and I was like, ah, "This is tiring. Mm-hmm. This isn't this isn't the fun." And then I would remember some of this, you know, singing simple songs, but doing it with these these gals in these churches way back in the day. I was like, man, that was fun. I want music to be that kind of fun. Mm. And so I picked up a harmonica, mostly because no one else was doing it and it fit in my pocket, which was a welcome change from a drum kit. And I went to juke joints. I went to these these places that were all black, and they looked really funny on me. And <laughs> they're like, are you sure you're in the right place? You know, right? <laughs> And like, oh yeah, yeah, just uh, I'm here for the music, love it, you know. And after a while, they they let me join in. I was really bad. They were really nice. Um, they would make fun of me in lighthearted ways, and I'd I'd accept it. I was like, I know, I'm I'm the rookie, I'm the odd man out, and uh, but I persevered, and my heart really was drawn mm-hmm. to this kind of music. Uh, I felt there was an honesty, and there was. You know, a transparency. You could really be a part of what this person was feeling yeah. when you heard them perform. I loved it, so I continued, and uh, it got easier the better I got. <laughs> But uh, there's still, you know, I'm sure a lot of people have a certain expectation for what a blues 
singer performer should should look like mm-hmm. and uh, I'm fine with not meeting those expectations mm-hmm. for people yeah because usually once they hear me perform they're like oh yeah. okay well it sounds like blues nice. <laughs> <laughs> so when was the first time you play harmonica I was about 20 22 so I've been playing harmonica now for about 24 years and over the time It's really allowed me to have the perspective of you know my approach is so much different mm. uh, the way I go about things and you know I didn't ever take myself seriously mm. as a musician until I got here so like six years ago I was like okay fine I'm gonna try to be a musician seriously now and once I did that um, I, I could start to see a lot more progress mm. you know you, ha- you have to respect certain aspects of mm. the industry yeah. if you're going to. You already produce many albums now. How many albums? Yeah, when I moved here and decided, okay, fine, I'm going to do music as a profession, seriously now, I had um, a whole bunch of tracks already recorded by friends from Athens and said, well, I'll put that album out. And that was called The Porch Album. And that got nominated for Best Blues Album. And then two years later, I put out the uh, album called A Delta Dawn. Mm-hmm. which was trying to utilize as many St. John's musicians as possible. Yeah. And I had a ton of really amazing performances by St. John's Best mm-hmm. on that album. It was really fun. I learned a lot uh, doing that, but you know, when that was said and done, it got nominated as well for a blues album. And then two years later, now we put out Make Me Down, which is uh, acoustic collaboration with mm-hmm. Callum Lada. And I hadn't really done just a, uh, you know, A one-on-one collaboration yeah. with somebody before and so that was fun and that was great mm-hmm. and um, I, I think that's probably the strongest album I've put out yet so let's play first song from the album porch what is that song well I'll just say there's one there where I get a little bit more melodic and um, it's called give love get love and that was the one that my family said you might have some success with that one <laughs> give love get love That's right. It's good. It just has a you know kind of a catchy poppy melody, and it's 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 a lot of just transparent heart mm-hmm. energy, right? Just laying it out there. Okay, let's play that song now. Okay. I give love. I get love. I give love. I get love. Yes, I know love. I feel love. I have love. So I make. Love and I give love, I give love and I swear that's living just fine. That's living just That's what I'm talking about, Dave. Now let's talk, let's talk about about the latest album, uh, Make Me Down. Make yeah. Me Down is yep. a now is on Spotify and all kind of platform. I love this album. Oh, thank you. Too bad Column is not here. <laughs> Tell yeah. us about the the production of this album. 
This album was a lot of fun to put together because uh, acoustic means less moving parts. Uh, there was him and there was me, and we've been doing a ton of shows together, so mm -hmm. we were well rehearsed and we knew. So we recorded the album like very quickly. Like mm -hmm. we did it, we did several sessions, but every time we were in session, it only took one or two takes for the most part. And yeah. you know, we were just we all the experience playing together really showed uh, on this album. And the production of it was, I made it harder than I needed to because I need I wanted to learn some of the mistakes that I made in the mm -hmm. previous album. Yeah. Uh, when you are, when you don't have a lot of money and you're trying to put out albums, you have to wear a lot of hats. You have to be the person or you have to have a lot of good connections. Mm -hmm. And so I'm not a very good uh, tech person. Uh, but I've had to learn a lot of that. I've had to learn a lot of mixing. And uh, so with this album, I took a little bit more time than I needed to. Mm. But then I got uh, a professional in at the end to make sure that it was all yeah. nice and done. And Jason Whalen. Jason Whalen, I know him. Yeah, he's yeah. great. And he does a lot of wonderful work in the community. So he, he took the reins from me. And, uh, and that was wonderful because, yeah, now we had a product for the first time. I mean, the last two albums I had done myself completely. Mm -hmm. And this one had a lot more professional input which I was and great. I, uh, I saw the, the name of someone I know there Daryl Power yeah so Daryl Power um, in addition to the engineering and the mixing mastering professionalism we got we also decided we needed somebody with really good ears and had a good understanding of what we were doing and that was Daryl Power mm -hmm. and I think a lot of people in this community know who Daryl Power is mm -hmm. so I don't need to give him an introduction necessarily, oh but, okay but uh, yeah he's he's amazing and he was so generous with his time and he got us in the right direction and we took his thoughts right into the studio mm -hmm. and uh, executed I'd like for us to play make me down what yeah, do you think about that great let's do it now me Make me down Make me a pallet down soft and low Make me a pallet on your floor Own the country forty miles more Going the country forty miles more Going her to that country with a cold sleet and snow Telling how much further I may go So make me down Make me down Make me a pallet down soft and low Make me a pallet on your floor Dave, this album is amazing. I love it. Thank you so much. I got in my Spotify and listened over and over. Just how your harmonica, singing, and also columns, guitar, just perfect. So you you write music mostly with harmonica. People mostly write uh, mm. what I what I knew write uh, music with guitar. That's right. You how how do you write with harmonica? Sure. Um, recently, I've incorporated an ukulele so that I can also do more songwriting with those chords, and it's a whole different approach. But when you're when you're doing it on with a harmonica, most it's a very melody driven, mm -hmm. right? Harmonica is like a horn instrument where 
you're you're doing melody lines for mm -hmm. the most part. So I think um, it definitely offers a different approach. The songs, I think, sound different because I'm using a harmonica just like, well, I know lots of songwriters, like a fiddler, you mm -hmm. know, would be in the same situation now. You know, they can play chords pretty well. And I could play chords on harmonica too. But for the most part, we're trained to be thinking about a certain aspect of the music. And our my role as a harmonica player is usually lead lines, mm -hmm. you know, take a solo. And so when I'm writing with harmonica, I will have usually a riff, right? I'll usually have some kind of, we call it a motif, you know, mm -hmm. in music. It's just a small fragment of a melody mm -hmm. that sounds good or goes good with a certain phrase. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. and sometimes it's just a certain phrase that has a certain inflection that lends itself to a melody. And so it starts there. It's like, oh, okay. Um, like, uh, ain't it a hard time when that hand comes down on you? Right? So that's just a melody line. And that, you know, I turned that melody line into a song. I think it's a, in some ways a different approach than if you start with chord structure. And now that I've been doing a lot of writing on ukulele, um, I have a chord structure, and then my melodic structure comes later. Mm, interesting. And it challenges me quite a bit because uh, with the chord structure, you have a lot of options. Mm -hmm. Now, when you have a melody, it pretty much lends itself to which mm. chords you want to use. Of course, you have yeah. some options. But the other way around is, is pretty interesting because then you see the melody getting tweaked and tweaked and tweaked because mm -hmm. you're, you're set on this, this chord pattern. Mm -hmm. And normally you don't want to change the chord pattern, you want to change the melody to match the chord I pattern. I see. So, yeah. I'm, I'm curious because uh, I have seen you playing with harmonica. Now I would like uh, for you, do you have a, a brand new song that you want to introduce? Yes, I have um, lots of new stuff here. Uh -huh. I, I would like for you to play with ukulele now because, <laughs> because uh, well, no doubt when you play harmonica, Dave Mundy is one of the best harmonica players. But what about ukulele? <laughs> <That's> <laughs> All right. Uh, what, what, what song is this? Okay, this uh, new one's called The Kettle Gets a Shine. She wasn't trying very hard I don't fuss much about grit or grind Cause sometimes the kettle gets a shine I said sometimes the kettle gets a shine Joe, skin and bone. Wife just died and left him all alone. He loved to look up at the sky and say, My darling, your kettle got a shine. He says, My dear, your kettle got a shine. Woo, Dave! <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, you, maybe next time we have to sit down and write a song together. What do you think about that? That's right. <laughs> Anytime. <laughs> Dave, thank you very much for coming. Thank you. Success I really for the album you. and coming up album. Excellent. Bye for now. Thanks, I. Soft and low, make 
a pallet on That was singer and songwriter Dave Mundy in conversation with Zai Nova. After this break, let's meet an individual who not only traveled from Mexico to Newfoundland to study theater, but also ended up opening his own theatrical company called Todos. Who is this? Let's find out after this break. Volunteering. It can begin with the simplest of gestures. A gift of time, energy, commitment. Something precious that grows stronger with every hand that touches it and grows across communities and through the very fabric of our nation and begins once again with the simplest of gestures. To Canada's six and a half million volunteers, thanks. A message from Volunteer Canada, the Government of Canada and this station. Listen to Global Frequencies, a new program celebrating diversity in Newfoundland and Labrador, covering topics pertinent to the diversification of the province, multiculturalism, immigrant businesses, anti-racism, integration, economic growth, and more. Every second Wednesday, 7 p.m. on CHMR 93.5 FM and on Spotify, Apple Podcast, and Google Podcast. This program is presented by the Association for New Canadians and CHMR 93.5 FM with funding from Community Radio Fund of Canada, Atlantic Canada's Opportunities Agency, and the Office of Immigration and Multiculturalism. Global Frequencies. Diverse province, diverse voices. You are listening to Global Frequencies. Diverse province, diverse voices. This individual is from a city called Metepec in Mexico. Now, the cool thing about Metepec is that it is quite well known for a sculpture or a form of pottery called the Tree of Life. And what it is, is these are clay pieces that traditionally would include biblical references, uh, especially to Adam and Eve, but have now also evolved to capture other kinds of subjects such as the day of the dead and folk art now back to this individual himself santiago guzman an individual who came from mexico moved to cornerbrook to pursue a bachelor in fine arts and theater and upon graduation not only decided to stay in the province but eventually open up his own theatrical company called todos this is my conversation with him Welcome to Global Frequencies, Santiago. I've been ecstatic to get you on the show to really explore something that is very fascinating and something that you don't really get to hear often occurring and being conceptualized in Newfoundland. And that is with respect to, you know, youth sort of vision and realization of the performing arts in the form of your theatrical production company, Todos. So welcome to the show, Santiago. I want to get to know you through this conversation. Thank you, Navila. It's it's such a, a pleasure of mine to sit down in the comfort of our homes and talk about us. So starting from us, let's take out the you part and I'm going to drag that to you. Tell <laughs> me about you. Well, uh, my name is Santiago Guzman. My pronouns are he and him. I am originally from Mexico. Uh, I was born in Mexico City, but raised in a small town outside of Mexico City called Metepe. And I grew up there, um, but also commuted between Mexico and Metepec a lot. So 
I feel pretty comfortable saying I'm from Mexico City, though, you know, I uh, when I go there, I also feel like a tourist uh, at times. It's just so big. I moved to Canada. I moved to Corner Brook, Newfoundland Labrador, back in 2015 to pursue a BFA in theater at Grenfell Campus, Memorial University. And uh, upon graduating, I decided to stay in Newfoundland Labrador. And, and yeah, I've decided to make St. John's Newfoundland Labrador home. So let's go back to your time in Mexico City. What was your life like growing up and what was your artistic scope while you were there? Well, um, I feel like I, I grew up and I was very close to my grandmother and she loved watching uh, telenovelas or soap operas. And she loved those, like she would never miss her favorite telenovelas. It was like a, almost like a religion to her. And because I, I would spend so much time with her, I would always, you know, uh, sit down and, and watch them with her. And there was something about drama that I just loved watching. Wow. And, and then I remember they had like youth telenovelas. And I always said like, oh, I want to be like that. I want to do that. But obviously in Mexico, I think that at least for me growing up, I don't know now, but when I was growing up, being an artist was such a taboo because people would say that you wouldn't like eat from being an artist like that was not a job that was a pastime so obviously for me thinking about like um, doing this professionally I was a little bit nervous I was a little bit uh, hesitant to pursue it as a as a career so you know like I would just do it on the sides I started performing uh, actually doing theater when I was 11 I think 11 years old at school it was just like the school production and it was like the Christmas um, pageant and I I don't know but people were giving me the main like the lead roles all the time and and there was something that I enjoyed and I enjoyed feeling the adrenaline when I was on stage and I remember <laughs> when uh, after doing a show at school, like my friends or my classmates' parents would come to me and congratulate me in front of their kids, saying that I did a really good job. And I was like, you know what? I think I'm kind of okay. Like I can do a good job. <laughs> but again, I was hesitant to pursue it professionally. So as I was like growing older, I, I continued like since 11 until like 18, I was acting all the time. I was in, in the theater group at school and I was, I was a part of a, a theater company outside of school. I was taking classes. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then I wanted to study because again, I was afraid of, of pursuing this career. I wanted to pursue communications in Mexico. And I had a really, really good scholarship in Mexico uh, because I, I went to this uh, program and, and they like a, a university was offering me a really good scholarship to stay with them um, and their program. And I remember going to that uh, university and asked about their communications program. And, and I just asked out of curiosity, I said, I, I love theater and I am interested in your communications program. So what is like, how do you think I can merge both my passion with theater, with communications? And the person, the teacher that was just there doing this like open house a session said to me, oh no, this is not a fine arts school. If you want fine arts, go to Los Angeles, go to New York, go to London. But no, this is a business school. 
Like, you are not here to do art. And I was taken aback because that was what I, like, that was my plan. That was my life as I had envisioned it. So I said to myself, I was like, well, maybe he, I was very offended because I was very dramatic. So I was like pretty upset. My mom was also really taken aback. She was like, how dare he? But my dad was the one who, and my dad, I mean, my dad is a, a, an industrial chemical engineer by trade. Uh, I know that he had a, a difficult time understanding that I wanted to pursue the arts. But anyway, so he was the one who actually said to me, maybe he's right. Why don't you try, you know, looking for a fine arts school? Now, he never thought that I would be leaving the country. He thought that I was going to stay in Mexico. But when, when he gave me, when he enabled me to pursue my dream, I was like, you know what? Yes, I'm going to do this. And as I was looking into universities in Mexico, I saw that theater was not, like, there were a very few conservative programs. Um, most of them were, like, certificates or, like, after-school kind of programs. And I was like, no, I want to do this for reals. Uh, but I, I was also a little bit nervous because I had some sort of, like, a reputation, at least in my brain, in Mexico, um, that, I, that I was really good at it and whatever. So when it came to actually applying for university and for a theater school, I was a little bit nervous and and I was afraid of rejection. I thought that I was not good enough to to go to the National Theater School in Mexico. So anyway, I, I decided to look outside of Mexico and I started looking. The States was an option in the beginning because I had uh, some connections. I had gone to a theater company called Kids Who Care in Dallas-Fort Worth and so I thought about it, but then I was like, mm, no, it's pretty expensive and I'm not sure I want to be in the States. And then Canada uh, came to the picture. I had never been to Canada before. I had never, you know, never saw myself in Canada. But I was like, why not? And I started looking and I wanted to go to Toronto. Uh, that's where I wanted to be. I wanted to go to the U of T, but it was very expensive. I could not afford it. And I, my dad said to me, he was like, Santiago, I love you and I want to support you, but this is way out of our league. Like this is outside of our family budget. And I was like, okay, that's fair. So I decided to leave that behind. And then I went to a college fair in Mexico City and mom had a little booth. And mom was the only university in that particular college fair that had a BFA in theater and with with an acting stream so i asked a couple of questions and you know even when i was um asking about the program uh he the recruitment officer was like are you sure there there you know like business programs environmental studies uh psychology he's like are you really sure that you want to do theater and i was like yeah i want to and then he was like well you know it's hard to get in i was like i don't care i'm good and i'll try to I'll try to get in. So I auditioned and I actually had no plan B. I had no other choices. It was either mom or nothing. And I got in. So coming back to your high school days, you were clearly just intensely passionate about it. What about friends around you? Were they also sharing a similar dream as yours for you to kind of nurture this idea of acting? I think people were really supportive. And, and obviously I, I was surrounded by people in the art. So I had a lot of like theater friends, but even my friends who were not into theater, they were very supportive. And even to this day, my, my best friends from high school, uh, Natalia and Gabby, like were my, my closest friends. 
they they were always very supportive so they would always come out to see me they would always like promote my work so they were very passionate like i guess it was just because i believed in myself and i was so passionate about this that people believed in myself and they also believed in my passion so they said you know like he he's good and yes obviously i am a little bit and probably they were biased because we were we had just like such a strong relationship that they were like oh yeah he's good but uh, you know anyway i i was like really my passion and my my dreams were nurtured because I, i surrounded myself by family and friends that loved me and that wanted me to and wanted me to be happy and you said eventually your father came around to that idea so what sparked him to eventually say oh you know what maybe santiago you know could be onto yeah. something it's it's funny because he in the beginning he thought that it was my mom who was like pushing this or that she was like trying to like yeah like push me towards the arts department but i said to dad i was like dad i just love this and and then i would always obviously invite him to my shows and he came out to a christmas um pageant where i played the devil uh and and that was one of like the one of the shows at least in my in my career uh but i was i was not even 15 i was like probably 13 14 that um that i did the show and i love that role and like i remember like improvising on stage because my my classmates were forgetting the lines so because i knew the show so well i knew my character i was like improvising and people loved it and they like ate me up So I remember leaving that show and my dad would come like came to me and he looked at me in the eyes and said now I understand why you love this so much and whatever it is I am going to support you. So it was he saw me on stage and and he believed in me. He saw that I that I had the chops and that I that I could succeed. So then you made the call, you decided that Cornerbrook Newfoundland would be your next destination. Tell me a little bit about your journey studying in the bachelor of fine arts program well yeah it was just like i didn't think about it i just said you know i had never like actually auditioned i i was performing i went to a bilingual school um so i was obviously performing in english like but it was not the same i was just like saying my lines in english that was it like memorizing lines in english but not actually performing them So and then I went to musical theater workshop in Texas so that was like a little bit of an introduction of what it would be like I was like I think I can do this uh but then I moved to to Canada and when I got there I was like oh my god like I didn't actually think about this process of this is not my first language so the things that I and I have been performing since I was 11 so from 11 to 18 I was performing in, in Spanish the whole time and I was doing like all of my improv skills and my my knowledge of theater and and the pieces that i knew and i also thought that i knew everything about theater going to university how very wrong so yeah i felt like i had to translate everything to be like okay this is how i move on stage in english like just the jargon of it all right like what does it mean when uh, my instructor is telling me like calm down stage i'll be like what because i had to adapt my brain for that but then the process of actually performing in english and that is something that i'm actually really grateful about because i feel like we take language for granted a lot as actors especially when you're acting in your mother tongue you tend to just learn your lines for the sake of learning your lines you're just like repeating words that you just like get in your brain and that's it but we don't actually process them and playwrights and now that i'm a playwright i think a lot about that 
that we put a lot of thought into the words that we set on paper. So actors should be doing that work as well, trying to um, decipher why, what are these words, what do they mean? So for me to be a, an ESL performer, I actually had to embrace language in a very different way that I had never done as a performer. So I feel like, for instance, doing Shakespeare, for me, is really easy because that's what I do in, in any play in, in, in English. Contemporary texts, that's what I do. I treat it as though it was Shakespeare. I didn't know that that was my process. But then when I learned, when I was introduced to Shakespeare, I was like, oh, I do this already. Um, and now, well, I haven't performed in Spanish in a long time, but I feel like that's what I would do. Like I would take, I would not take language for granted. I would just like look it up. So that was my experience adapting into, you know, like my craft in a second language. But then obviously, like I was the only immigrant in my program. So for the four years that I studied at Grenfell, I was the only newcomer doing this program. I was the only person doing this program in his second language. And I was the only person of color. So I had a really hard time, really, really hard time because I felt like People didn't know how to talk to me. People didn't know what I needed. People didn't know how to give me exactly what I needed to the point that I would ask for them and they would be like overwhelmed because they didn't know. Their references were very white. They were all about the Western perspective, the European Eurocentric perspective. And for instance, like I, they would, I would be given monologues and plays to read where I couldn't see myself. Like I was like, oh, I can relate, you know? And it's like, we grow up, I, I grew up like watching Disney and Cinderella, The Little Mermaid, like all of these fairy tales. Um, and yeah, you can relate to them at a, you know, universal theme level. But when it comes to seeing a person that has gone through a similar journey, a person, an immigrant, a newcomer, a queer person, you name it, a woman, because that's the other thing. Um, I, I, I read a lot of like male playwrights. It's, it's harder to, to be able to connect, especially as performers that we, and, and you know that, like how do you connect with your true self? Because yes, you are performing different roles, different lives, different lines, but it all boils down to you, who you are as a human being, and how do you bring your own person to this character? So then, you know, this observation that you've had as possibly not seeing yourself represented as a visible minority in your actual craft itself, was that sort of like the, the guiding force behind Todos? Oh yeah, absolutely. So, so tell me I, more about that. So, you know, the funny thing was that Todos was, I don't want to say that it was necessarily an accident, but I, well, that was always when I became more aware of all of these things about like me being a visible minority and not having the same access to opportunities that the plays that they were being produced were not, you know, representative of our society as a whole. I started dreaming about like, you know, it would be great to have a theater company because what happened was that I, all of these things that I was introduced to in my theater, in my acting program, I had to take English courses, like Canadian drama courses, um, my English surveys at university. And in those, in those classes, I was introduced to other playwrights. And one of my assignments for that class was to do a presentation on whatever I wanted, something Can theater Canadian related. So what I did was that I looked at um, culturally specific theater companies across the country. 
So I talked about those and I was like, so there is this and this is what they do. Da, 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 da. So you kind of did remember, like an environmental scan. Pretty much to say like, okay, what is it that people are doing in uh, across the, the country? And then I ended my, conversa- my, my presentation with, and what about Newfoundland? And that was like really the beginning of like, we need something in Newfoundland because obviously we have amazing theater companies like um, Resource Center for the Arts Theater Company, Artistic Fraud of Newfoundland, White Rooster Theater, uh, Rising Tide Theater, the Season Theater, like a lot of theater companies in Newfoundland, but none of them focus, like really focus on racing or highlighting the experiences of people that are not usually seen and heard. Yeah, you know, like nowadays, especially more like recently, people are trying to pay more, more attention to that, but that's, that was not their goal, right? Like that, they were just doing their life. So to me, what I wanted to do was to change that and to say, nope, what I want to focus on is, is on these voices that we commonly don't see represented on stage. So that was the first attempt or the first understanding of this is what a theater. And then later on, because I took this uh, entrepreneurial workshop at MAN, um, where I, in order to get into this program, I applied. I had to pitch an idea, like a business idea. And my business idea was thoughts. That was it. Uh, and so through that work, workshop I developed like a a business plan a business model to talk about like what is it that I want to do now again um, I think that from that perspective the entrepreneurship program was looking more for business you know to generate revenue because I'm an artist I'm always thinking about non-for-profits and how do I actually focus on the community rather than you know just benefit myself from something I I'm not I'm not like that. So anyway, you know, I just like completed the program and then I applied to funding, uh, seed funding competition with todos. At first I was like, what am I even doing? I'm going to lose. Like, this is not for me. People are looking for businesses. This is not really a business. This is a non-for-profit. And, but I was like, well, what odds? I'm just going to go for it and see what happens. I applied. I did a, a, a live pitch. And I won the competition. And the last question to you is, choose three words to describe todos. Dreamers, we are fearless, and we are full of love. And, and for those listening, todos means? Todos means all or everyone. So uh, todos is really a, a, a platform for all. Santiago, this was an absolute delight. You know, I actually imagined your entire story. Like I actually imagined you walking down the hallway in your school in in Mexico. And I imagined you like at that, uh, you know, exhibition, making that choice, like probably like, you know, with your finger on your mouth, you're like, hmm, should I go? Should I not? Should I go? You know, like those kids with like the petals. He loves me. He loves me not. So I just imagine the whole thing. So I think you have actually done complete justice to your um, role as an artistic visionary and artistic director. So thank you so much for sharing your story and for um, affirming that, uh, as you said, uh, always try and never be afraid of so-called rejection because there's always a silver lining in everything. And and I think your journey is uh, a shining example of that. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much, Nabila. Thank you very much for the space and thank you very much for letting me share. Thank you, Santiago.
That was Santiago Guzman, a playwright, performer, and director for theater and film. You can visit his website, todosproductions.com, and that's T-O-D-O-S, todos. Listen to Global Frequencies, a new program celebrating diversity in Newfoundland and Labrador, covering topics pertinent to the diversification of the province, multiculturalism, immigrant businesses, anti-racism, integration, economic growth, and more. Every second Wednesday, 7 p.m. on CHMR 93.5 FM and on Spotify, Apple Podcast, and Google Podcast. This program is presented by the Association for New Canadians and CHMR 93.5 FM with funding from Community Radio Fund of Canada, Atlantic Canada's Opportunities Agency, and the Office of Immigration and Multiculturalism. Global Frequencies. Diverse province, diverse voices. You are listening to Global Frequencies. Diverse province, diverse voices. Up next, Hussam Basime, an undergraduate physics and mathematics student at MUN, who discusses his challenging journey with securing a scholarship to study in North America and eventually settling in Canada, and his role in being part of a team that helped establish an education-based program to help former refugees pursue their post-secondary education. Welcome to the studio, Hussam. Thank you, Nabila. Thanks for having me. Uh, my pleasure. So I've been very eager and excited to have you on the show to find out more about the WUSC SRP program. So before we get into that, I'd like to get to know a little bit more about you. So tell us about yourself. Uh, sure. So my name is Hussam. I am a physics and math student. I'm doing a double major in math and physics at MUN in my fourth year. Uh, I came to Newfoundland three years ago through a full scholarship. I lived in Syria until I was 19 years old. And uh, that was when I won a full scholarship from the Institute of International Education. So uh, that scholarship was initially to the United States. and. The then once I won the scholarship, I, uh, if you remember in early 2017, there was a travel ban for all Syrians uh, coming to the U.S. So that was when my scholarship changed the funding or like allowed us to use the funding to study in Canada. And uh, I applied to Memorial University and I came here. It's been the best three years of my life. So just as a sort of precursor to understanding what WUSC SRP is, uh, tell us a little bit yeah. more about what that journey was like securing mm. that scholarship in Syria. When I was in Syria, I decided that I wanted to travel when I was uh, about 15 or 16 years old, uh, like the beginning of high school. That was like uh, we were five or six years into the war. I began to see that there wasn't so much opportunity for uh, if I wanted to continue my education in Syria, the uh, education that I could receive in Syria wouldn't be, uh, there, there wouldn't be a lot of opportunity in terms of studying or a career, and I needed to travel. The problem was that uh, the economy wasn't doing well either, and uh, studying outside was becoming more expensive to somebody uh, living in Syria. So I knew I needed a scholarship, and uh, at that time I didn't even speak English. So I decided like, all right, I'll apply to scholarships. So um, I decided to start studying English through uh, courses outside my school. I was also at that time uh, doing some volunteer work and I started focusing more on studying as well because uh, my grades also before I made that decision weren't that good either. So, uh, and I needed to uh, get to a level where I can be competitive when applying to scholarships. And the number of scholarships was very limited. Like you can imagine, e even if you're, uh, 
a Canadian citizen, the number of scholarships is limited. So for international students, the competition is larger. You're competing with so many other students and the number of scholarships is, is lower. So uh, you need to be very competitive when you apply. You need to know what they're looking for when they're evaluating the applications. And uh, you have to apply to a lot of scholarships as well. So uh, I applied to so many scholarships that rejected me before I got this full scholarship from the Institute of International Education. Funny enough, this one was the one with the highest funding and the most like selective one. Uh, but the scholarships that are quote unquote easier that I applied to earlier gave me the, uh, the necessary experience to improve myself, to work on myself, to uh, know what I need to work on in order to get to a level where I can win a full scholarship uh, that will allow me to travel and study. Tell me about sort of your interest in applying for voluntary position with WUSC SRP at MUN. And perhaps you can even tell us more about what WUSC is. Yeah. Well, my interest in volunteering in these sort of positions was even before I traveled to Canada. So even when I was in Syria, I used to volunteer in an organization called Sayar. There are a lot of um, homeless children in Syria who don't have the opportunity to study in school because they had to work. Like even if we give them access to a school, they have to go to work so they wouldn't go to school. So what we were doing just briefly that we would uh, meet them every week and teach them the necessary uh, education that they would need to go back to school in the future when they don't have to work anymore. And uh, that was when I began volunteering. And when I came to Canada, I also wanted to volunteer because I knew that there are a lot of people who need help. And uh, I realized that now I'm in a position that I'm able to help even more. So I uh, started looking for some opportunities where my efforts can help the most vulnerable. And I met some amazing students who were who also had uh, that interest. That team, that the WUSC team at that time was five people. You were one of them. So uh, what we wanted to do, uh, there was a team of five. And what we wanted to do was to create a program at Memorial University to sponsor one refugee student every year to travel to Canada and study at Memorial University with us. The problem with that is you need a lot of money. So where we would get the funding is through a referendum. So uh, through a student levy. And uh, the student levy is a money that a small amount of money that every student pays every semester. And we would implement that through a student referendum. So we would ask all students of the university, all undergraduate students, whether they approve paying $2 per semester. And all the money that we collect, 100% of it, would go to sponsoring a refugee student to travel to Canada and study at MUN. It takes a lot of work to kind of um, campaign and raise awareness. So we needed to do a lot of preparation. The team had to do a lot in order to uh, introduce the program in a way that would inform all students about all the aspects that they need to know before there is a referendum. We, need, we needed to raise awareness, hold events, talk about the refugee crisis, why this is important, why the students need to have such a program. We talked about success stories from other universities who already have the program. In one of the events, we had uh, the VR classes, the virtual reality, where we showed students in uh, on campus what a refugee camp looks like. We showed them the journey of uh, a refugee who's trying to flee the war and how dangerous that is and what would make somebody go through that journey, how difficult would it be? So it showed how they need our help. So that was kind of the preparation stage where we were introducing the crisis, showing the students that there's a problem that we need to 
find a solution for. And then when students had more awareness about the, the issue and wanted and were eager to find a solution, we introduced the referendum. One of the events that uh, were held, uh, as you mentioned, the virtual reality. Mm. Do you remember that event? What yes, took place? I do. Yes, we were uh, at Memorial University Center. And in that event, we talked a lot about the struggles that refugees face in, in their journey and how just your passport can uh, make your options so limited when you are in need. It, it kind of showed a lot of problems that a lot of people don't notice and don't even think about. And we also talked about uh, the amount of time that refugees have to wait in order to get to get their applications processed, like uh, how long you have to wait in a refugee camp before uh, you can even be accepted to a country where you can be safe. What that means to all these families, uh, to all these students. It kind of showed a lot of aspects of the refugee crisis that even people who are aware of the issue don't necessarily know about. I noticed the students who were at the event were like, when they were hearing this information, like uh, uh, raising their eyebrows, like, oh, I, like I didn't know that. Like I, I knew there was a refugee crisis, but I didn't know that all these struggles were a part of it. And it kind of uh, gave a sense of urgency that we need to act. Even if we are going to help one person at a time, that's still changing a life. It's a big difference. Every time we held one of these events, um, it uh, gave us another push that from students. They were eager to support us in finding a solution that we introduced later on. They wanted to help. They, they, they wanted to find a path to help refugee students. Out of curiosity, this is just based on even my observation, but mm -hmm. what do you think the youth or students on campus are looking for when it comes to advocacy, awareness, and activism? I believe the students are looking for uh, ways to act. I think that sometimes when discussing refugee crisis, people tend to talk more than they act. That's a problem that I, I could see that the students noticed and uh, were upset about. Like it, it's, it's not enough to hold an event and uh, talk about the refugee crisis without having a path to at least helping one person. The students are looking for a way to help refugees, not just talk about the crisis because yes, raising awareness is important, but you have to have at least a plan to help to convert that this awareness that you're creating into an action. And that's exactly what our team focused on. So uh, if you could sum up um, your entire experience with uh, this program um, in a few words, let's say three adjectives. Passion, dream, and education. It's, it's, it's incredible. It's, it's something that it connected with me before I got my scholarship. Uh, like when I was working on this program, I was remembering the younger me who was eager to get an opportunity like this. I was always telling myself, there is another Hussam who is just like me a few years ago, doing anything they can get an opportunity like this. And you know how much this is going to change their life. And that person is out there and they need you. Hussam, thank you so much for this enlightening conversation. And I really I, appreciate having me here. I, I think this is a fantastic way to commemorate this experience and to have it there for anyone listening out there that, as Hussam indicated, you can always make a difference. One program at a time, one life at a time, just have passion, a dream, and a desire to want to be a part of the solution. And it's possible. Thank you, Hussam. Thank you so much, Nabil. That's it for today, folks. That was episode 10. We're looking forward to bringing another treasure full of stories for you again with episode 11. If you are interested in sharing your story 
or want to share your comments and feedback, email us at globalfrequencies at ancnl.ca or simply search for us, the Association for New Canadians. This is Nabila Qureshi signing off, but waiting yet again to greet you two weeks from now. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Global Frequencies, Diverse Province, Diverse Voices. This program is presented by the Association for New Canadians and CHMR 93.5 FM with funding from the Community Radio Fund of Canada. The ANC is a non-profit community-based organization dedicated to the provision of settlement and integration services for immigrants in the province for over 40 years. CHMR FM is an award-winning community radio station operating out of Memorial University. The station has been broadcasting a range of music, spoken word, and cultural programming since 1987. If you would like to touch base with us, email us at globalfrequencies at ancnl.ca.